you to plant a tree would that be easy for you yeah would you know how to plant a tree hmm no probably not well i don't know if it's different from planting other plants i'm a person who's full of ideas like seeds some of them grow and some of them don't Some of them become little metaphorical seedlings and are eaten by metaphorical sheep, and others spring up into idea trees without really being tended at all. One of my more bonkers ideas was to record 100 conversations about climate change and spend half a year editing them into a podcast to share with you. This is episode 9 of that very podcast. And I'm asking, have we lost our connection to nature? I asked my dad how to plant a tree. He features quite a bit in this episode. Technically, it's not difficult. Um, the easiest thing to do is, is to actually to look around and see where there are tre- trees that need a bit of help. So um, a lot of our native trees um, can be quite prolific cedars. So um, ash, for example, and birch trees produce a lot of, uh, a lot of seeds. These grow everywhere, they just need to be transplanted to somewhere where they're more likely to grow. So if they're growing in your gutter, for example, where I'm always pulling out little seedlings, you can just stick them in a pot and they will, they will grow. Um, the best thing we can do is encourage nature rather than trying to um, superimpose something. So if you see small seedlings growing and you think you can help them in some way, perhaps by cutting away the, the, uh, the, the, the brambles and things around them to give them a little bit of a chance, um, then that can, can sometimes be just as much an act of, of, uh, of rebellion and, and, and guerrilla tactics as, as planting seeds in a nursery and growing small trees and then taking them out and digging holes and putting them in. Because many of those trees that you, you grow in a nursery and put out will not survive. Um, because they're just not tough enough whereas the resilience is actually built into nature so if you find naturally regenerated seedlings they are likely to be tough they've already got through the critical early stages of development and um, and, and so they're more likely to have a chance tricks I think most people know that you can you can establish a willow tree very quickly just by taking a, a cutting a little piece of willow and sticking it in the ground again it's something you can do anywhere at any time and willow is a really important um, tree for all sorts of reasons it's a fast growing tree so it's it's absorbing carbon um, uh, quickly um, it also is a good uh, it flowers prolifically and, and early in the year so it's very good for bees and other pollinators so it has a lot of uses and um, 
But ultimately, it, it should be said that um, growing trees and then using them for some short-term use, for example, firewood, which is um, what I do here, burn a lot of firewood, is at best a carbon neutral. It's not actually storing any carbon for any length of time. So basically, trees grow, you chop them down, you burn them, or you turn them into paper or something that's going to rot away quickly, and you're recycling that carbon, but you're not storing it. Um, the way to store carbon in a, is, is either through something like the, the peat cycle I've described, or by producing something from, from trees that is going to last for a long or a very long time. And this is why I think things like um, wooden furniture, um, uh, looking for wooden alternatives to things, something that's going to become a, an heirloom or an antique or be passed on from generation to generation. You know, the floorboards that here in, in this room made out of oak, you know, hopefully they're going to be here for the next, you know, 500 years. And so they are acting essentially as a, as a carbon store. And so how are people thinking and connecting with nature then? I've been learning about with the brain, you know, everything is about experiences. The more that we're exposed to something, the more uh, our, literally our cells and our brain, our neurons can form memories about uh, you know, those experiences. You can then reflect upon those and you can create your own uh, sort of, well, understanding of reality. But if you're not exposed to those ideas, if you don't have some background with, with the, the ecosystem kind of mindset and, and, and conceptualization of, of Earth, then you don't know. You have no idea how to create some uh, you know, positive, interactive way of, of being part of the world. I think there's, there's still a long way to go to... Uh, get back to the roots of that ecosystem concept that, that my dad taught us. It seems like so few people are pursuing that kind of an education and are pursuing that kind of a, of a lifestyle that, uh, especially in the urban areas where, where just millions and millions of people are, are much more interested in business pursuits and, and entrepreneurial pursuits that are linked to, to again, this, this, this kind of... Uh, existence of consumption and, and mixing the needs with the wants kind of an idea because all they're around is anthropomorphic creation they're not around trees and water and birds and, and things that are outside of the human sort of realm um, have you seen have you seen Pocahontas that Disney film like years ago <laughs> <laughs> yeah so uh, just yesterday, um, something on NPR was talking about this UN report. I'm, I'm sure that you've been made aware of this UN report that was just published about a million species on Earth that are now facing extinction pretty much because of human behaviors. And it just immediately brought me back to the song that Pocahontas sings in the movie uh, called The Colors of the Wind. And in The Colors of the Wind, one of the things that she says, uh, or, or sings rather, to this white uh, you know, invader guy 
who giant John Smith from the British, the Puritans or something, who've come to the new world to colonize it. She says to him, you think you own whatever land you land on. And then she then goes on to say, but the earth is not some place that you can own. And then she goes on, you know, to give examples of how the Native Americans that she grew up with are part of the world, and there's these cycles, and we're just, we're just, you know, a, a stage within the evo- the the evolution of the Earth. But the mindset from the from the West and from the Europeans that were coming across was just so different. It was about this 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 monotheistic uh, sovereignty orientation that uh, um, was ordained by God. Because it's like half the population of the globe now is, is living in a city. And, and many of these people, they just they have no experiences going to forests or going to, to lakes or rivers or fishing or camping or, or doing something that's outside of the mall or outside of the apartment building or outside of the, you know, the street life. Um, they, you know, food for them is just what's in the grocery store. And... I think there's, um, uh, I think I mentioned it before, a beautiful book by Robert McFarlane and <clears throat> Jackie Morris called uh, The Lost Words. And it's about words that children no longer have in their vocabulary. Um, so just nature, like words of nature and not knowing, you know, the word bracken and I can't remember the words, but like adder and the names of different birds and animals. And I think that's a big thing, isn't it? Like, actually, um, just kind of knowing the words for the stuff that's in your bit of the world. I kind of want to at least have a ball at different types of writing. So I think I've, I've come to um, nature writing late in life. Like, I've never read anything like that. And in the last couple of years, I've totally gobbled up like Robert, Robert McFarlane particularly I love his books and it feels like I am developing and learning about myself and learning about the world around me and trying to consciously be more aware of things in nature and nature makes me feel and spending time in nature and yeah I have no idea. Like, I can't identify flowers and trees and birds and bird song. And so it feels like there might be something interesting there in kind of documenting that journey of, of learning about stuff. And Rob McFarlane does something I really like. He tends to walk from place to place and then meets up with eccentric men who are doing interesting things in, in remote places. I'm like, I kind of want to be the female Robert McFarlane. Like, find out where the eccentric women are who are doing interesting things all over the place and, and go and do the walks around where they are and find the, you know, Egan on the Western Isles or whatever it is that, that is something. It's interesting people that are linked by mad places. So I'm quite drawn to that. I mean, I always like being outside. And, you see, culturally, in Sri Lanka, you didn't necessarily go out and hang outside. You, you kept out of the sun, Yeah. Yeah. I think mean, it's culturally, maybe it's just my family. I mean, I have some members that love being outside. But you, you stayed out of the sun. You didn't go out in the sun. And my mum didn't, wasn't, they, they weren't walker, outdoorsy types. But I always was. And um, my dad actually recently said, oh, what a shame. You always wanted to go outside and you always wanted 
like animals and we weren't so into that. Um, so I just had it in me as a kid. And I was most happy outside. And I remember as a kid being in the garden a lot and just sitting and making birds' nests out of dried grass and, you know, like picking honeysuckle and licking the flower, you know, because it's sweet and all. You know, I just really liked being outside. And so I don't... And more than my sister, my sister didn't have the same thing. So maybe it was something that was just intrinsic in me. We've been developing quite a, uh, a strong sort of line in mindful walking and in particular notion of green mindful walking so um there's been a a project in sheffield's um it, it's it's iwun uh improving welfare through nature that's basically the idea so it's exploring that sort of idea and they've been you know they're suggesting green prescribing have you come across that no it's the notion that um trying to encourage GPs to <clears throat> prescribe green activities like going out for a walk in the forest or in the in the or even in the parks and such for me as I say my my intentions are are ethical as much as anything I think there's there's a strong ethical case for being more more concerned about the environment and the climate uh, not just for human beings, but also for animals. I mean, you know, because um, we don't have pets because um, Denise is allergic to dogs and cats. So we've basically adopted a family of sparrows who live in our garden. And then you start to think, well, we need to make sure we've got a nice environment for them. We need to look after them, you know, even if it's just as simple as chasing cats away and such like. But creating a nice place for them, and I, th I think that notion that it's not just for us, it's for for all beings on the planet, that's important to me ethically. Hang on, are we really asking people to connect with nature just at the point where we're about to destroy it all? Melange cedar wood is now extinct. There's no more trees left of that kind. thought about trees going extinct to be honest like obviously i knew animals went extinct but i never even considered the fact that a tree would go extinct it's quite disturbing <laughs> that a, a type of tree could go extinct like even you know when the amazon forest was burning like a lot of kids were talking about it at school and i just went online and i saw that you could buy an acre of rainforest for a hundred pounds and i did it and people like that because we talked about it and it was mentioned in assembly um so that's like look bad things are happening but oh look this is something you could do to mitigate that bad thing in a little way like the acre of rainforest isn't in the amazon it's in mexico but you know it's to protect that piece of land but i guess if animals go extinct then a lot of plants and trees will go extinct anyway because they rely on each other, don't they? So the trees need the animals to spread their seeds. Yeah, that's true. And the animals need the trees to eat. So if a type of tree that feeds, like there's one type of animal would go extinct, then the animal would go extinct. Yeah. And then true. maybe that animal pollinated something else. So if that goes extinct, then another kind of tree it's or tree. plant. It's a domino effect. Yeah. It's, it, I think it's even a web or something like that. Yeah. I 
say that would be interesting to look into. And this is where it gets scary, right? When you start talking to people how quickly um, flora and fauna, animals and plants, are basically moving up in altitude or further north, and they're just, you know, it's just natural that they're moving at the rate of a centimetre a day kind of thing. When you talk, when you talk about that, that, you know, that's seven centimetres a week, suddenly that, you know, they've moved. When people start realising how quickly Na nature is changing because of the increases in climate that again you you start th that has an impact but when you then sort of say and what that means is that things like malaria dengue fever zika virus um, those are all no longer tropical diseases the fact that the mosquito that carries malaria dengue fever and zika is now in the UK that gives people pause, especially women who are thinking about having babies and being pregnant, thinking of the fact that the Zika virus is now something that they have to think about in the UK. That's scary. We waste a lot of research and money and effort and conservation effort trying to protect some species that are definitely on the way out and there's absolutely nothing we can do really to save them it is not worth having armed guards on a single orchid species somewhere in the yorkshire moors it, it is, this is this is we've got to sort of crazy levels to try and save individual species what we've got to do is see what habitats are healthy which ones are functioning which ones are working in order to um, reduce the amount of carbon in the atmosphere so a really good example is the peatlands. Um, the Britain has um, some exceptionally large and important areas of, of peat, particularly in the northwest of, of Britain. Um, within those peatlands there is many times as more carbon than stored in all of the woodlands and forests over the whole of the country. Um, and yet we always focus on woodlands and not on trying to restore and and to uh, encourage the growth of peat. But peat's the only way really that we can put carbon back into storage. It, it, it's almost, if you imagine that the coal and gas that we burn is, uh, is carboniferous peat swamps, it's like we're almost turning things back by putting the carbon back into storage in these massive great sinks and in some parts of Scotland there are six meters of solid peat before you get down to to the rock underneath so this is a, a, a massive area. How, so, do you, how do you restore peat bark? Well okay there's a couple of things that you you, you can do first of all where there's good um, peat bogs then you can make sure that where they've been drained or they've been planted up with trees you remove the trees, you block up the drains, you allow the watercourses naturally to, to sink. So that's the first thing you can do. And that's being done in a massive scale in the flow country up in, 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 in Caithness and Sutherland. But the other thing that you can do is you can stop mining peat for horticulture. Uh, now, our local council here, Midlothian Council, have just given planning permission for a massive uh, expansion of horticultural peat cu cutting 
in the the bogs that occur between the Pentland Hills and, and here, a large area there that's being um, mined for horticultural peat, which will release an incredible amount of, of, of stored carbon into the atmosphere. That's outrageous. It's outrageous that we're able to do that at the, at the moment when we're declaring it as climate emergency at the same time we're giving planning permission to extract horticultural peat. There is nowhere, no garden centre in the country where they don't sell them um, products with peat. And if you go to any garden centre, you will find that um, nearly all of the of the horticultural products there, the the um, the composts, um, a medium for, for for sowing seeds and things, they all contain peat. It's perfectly possible to produce it without peat. And if you if you shop around and insist, you can get in most places you can get peat-free alternatives. But most of the products still have peat in, and that is that should just not be allowed. We should just ban that. Yeah, um, I didn't know away. that. Yeah. So, and people don't. I mean, people just go and buy the cheapest bag of, of, of peat and they think they're doing a great thing because they're growing plants and that's good, isn't it? But what they're actually doing is releasing more of the carbon in, in, from the peat bogs in, that, in, in the pot of peat than they are mm. um, absorbing in the, if, from the leaves of the, of the plants that they're growing in those pots. It might be nice to escape. Hey, when I spoke to Ben, he was busy helping his parents create some peatland. That could be perfect. Should we find a new place that we can get away and just be surrounded by nature? The idea is to make a wetland and, and just increase the biodiversity of the area. And boggy areas are good carbon sinks as well. So it's our own little... In some, Somerset is basically all arable land, you, apart from some forest areas. So it's... Uh, the poor animals are like frantically hiding in hedgerows and we're trying to make a bit of a um, sanctuary, I guess, a small piece of land that's a bit different. And my parents are very aware that it may also be a place to to be when, um, if, if, if needed. But I'm, I'm thinking maybe some remote Scottish island might be more appropriate. <laughs> oh yeah, see you there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I spoke to some people from Scottish islands. Uh, I am an islander. It's, it's, a, it's a different pace of life to the mainland, certainly. It's only in the last 10 years there's been any sewage treatment on our own. Mainly it was just raw sewage flowing into the sea, so it's not exactly... It's, it's not, although it's nice and green, it's not necessarily the most environment place. The Forestry Commission, now they've cut down most of the mature trees. There's a lot less forest than there was there when I was growing up. But they're replanting because it was just one, I think Sitka spruce is it, but one mm. single species of pine tree they used to have. And it wasn't good for the environment. It's very acidic. There's no animals live there. And they're replanting with a mixture and deciduous trees and paths and, and like encouraging nature to grow in there as well. Um, and a lot of estates on Aaron are guilty of um, poisoning uh, rare birds, especially like golden eagles and stuff, which they see as a nuisance because they can pick off sheep and, and young deer. Um, obviously, from an environmental perspective, that's awful, and it's been against the law for 30 years, but they still do it. Um, but on the plus side, I mean, you can probably tell yourself, it's the yeah, air is just this beautiful, pure air you're breathing in because it's pretty much the Atlantic um, for 4,000 miles beyond Darren. 
Do you think you were brought up with a good connection to nature? Yeah, I think so. Well, well, my, my dad was a fisherman, so I always got brought up eating shellfish and, um, you know, putting, putting like, lobsters into boiling hot water and things that I think if you weren't around that sort of thing, it might seem really gruesome, but actually it's, it becomes normalised a little bit, I suppose. And what about not, like, not just eating it, but sort of enjoying it, connecting to it, respecting it? Um, yeah. I think so. It's more about being aware of what, um, what impact you're having on the environment around you. And I think it's different from, you know, going between cities and going between really rural places as well, because you're in a rural place and you kind of, you almost kind of, in a way, think that you can kind of do what you want because... There's not a lot of people, and you're not seeing the impact of you know what, what's happening in it. You know, if you're in a big city, you're going, oh god, this place is absolutely full of fumes. It wouldn't stop going in cars. But in a rural place, you're just sort of kind of like like cheekily thinking, oh, it's okay because it doesn't really affect us here because look, we've got lovely fresh air, <laughs> so it's going to be no hassle me jumping in my car. This next bit feels like a bit of a climax to the whole story. Thank you for coming with me on the journey. Shall we hold hands here? It's the bit where we realise that it's too late to stop climate change. We need to adapt to it rather than to prevent it. One of the crazy things that we're doing at the moment is we know that the sea is going to rise. It is inevitable. Even if we stopped every bit of carbon emission tomorrow because of the lag, the sea is going to rise it is going to get wetter, floods are going to become more common. And yet we're still allowing people to build houses and schools and hospitals in floodplains and on coastal areas. Why are we doing that? Are we just denying reality that's going on? Are we just, you know, we learnt nothing from... Um, so, you know, what we need to do, though, is to say, right, well, the area... Of, along the coastline we're going to reclaim that we're going to reclaim that for nature we're going to make this fantastic wetland it's going to be just an amazing place you'll just you will want to go there and you'll be able to sail there and canoe there and have adventures and it'll be really exciting and we're going to build all those new housing and schools and development you know on on land you know and in again in, in britain there's no problem there are it's easy to build away from the coast if we if we put that as a, if that's a national policy. Holy moly, uh, that has blown my mind. Wow. But also, doesn't that in a little way slightly make you feel a bit optimistic? Do you know what I mean? It's supposed to be optimistic, I think. Right, because it's like, oh my God, right, the world's going to change. The world's going to change. And the thing is, and I know that on the back of that, like the kind of the supplement to that is that you people are going to lose their homes. People in some countries are going to lose their lives. There's going to be like this massive shift, which is obviously horrendous. But then you go, well... It'll just be a new world. It'll just be a different, a different place. 
Oh my god! Like you just can't imagine like the weather spoons being a marshland. I mean, what's the time scale your dad's talking about? Things will change, but basically, I think things will change, but only when it starts affecting the first world. Basically, the first world countries. I think at the moment, I think a lot of the reasons why, like, our government and other governments aren't doing things at the moment is because all the effects, you know, these huge weather systems that are changing are all, like, in developing countries and they can just kind of forget about it <laughs> and think, oh, well, it's just kind of what normally happens or, you know, it's not really affecting us yet. I think things will only start to change when it starts to affect us and by then it'll be far too late. Yeah. And that's interesting because we are used to coping with the fact that there's war and devastation yeah, in exactly. other countries and not doing anything about it and getting on with our lives. So how can that... And people have been trying to change that for years. Mm-hmm. So in some ways, climate change is the most terrifying thing. And, and I think that it's still okay to call it an opportunity in some regard in that we have this thunderous thing not only moving towards us but it's here now we can feel it especially this time of year like about all year round how unstable things feel but then the question is what we do with what's arrived do we choose to continue to say oh no it's just a lovely summer do we do we collapse into despair and not enjoy um the opportunities that it can provide do we do we catch these moments where people are looking and we say um, this is what this is what needs to be done, which is really an act of leadership. It doesn't you don't need to you don't need to be in parliament to um, for your voice to matter, you know? And and I'd love to feel like we can find artful, playful joyous ways to to transform the system with an acknowledgement that the movements always need to be diverse and inclusive and um and be led by voices that have been marginalized by history i know this sounds quite depressing but in my opinion i don't think we can stop it as much as people say we can because it's built up and up and up over hundreds upon thousands of years just getting that tiny bit hotter and that tiny wee ice just getting a wee bit more melted. I think that if we want to stop it as much as possible, then we have to reduce it as much as possible. I don't think we can completely get rid of it. Because unless we go back to basically primitive state where we don't we really have to hunt for food and stuff like that, I don't think it's possible. They say that in, in, in 10 years' time, summers in Glasgow will be like summers in London are now. Well, if that's the case, then you know, it'll be tough stuff all the time. And, <laughs> and, <laughs> and you'll think about, you know, think about what people grow in their allotments in, in London. That'll be what we will be growing up here. So we will, it won't just be tatties and neats because our climate will have changed and we will be able to grow things that are considered to be more southern or mediterranean and then if that's the case then if if that's what if glasgow is going to be like london then london's going to be like southern spain so yeah we'll get oranges from london 
then we'll get oranges from the south from the south of England. If you if you think well, in twenty thirty years time, it will it, our summers will have become so warm, comparatively, and it doesn't. And we're not talking by much, but have become so much warmer. Um, if people if people could could hold that in their heads and understand how much worse it could get, then then we'd start making plans now for that. We'd start sort of thinking, well, if that's what it's going to be, if, if that's true, that in 10 years' time, uh, summers in Glasgow will be like today's summers are like in London, and summers in London will be like what today's summers are in the south of Spain, then it doesn't take much imagination to think, well, then as soon as, if, as you go further south, those summers become unbearable for humans to live. So humans will start moving. And if that's the case, and we do face massive climate refugees, people who just can't live in places anymore because it's impossible to live there, what are we going to do about that? Mm -hmm. And the current answer is put up a wall and keep them out. Seems to me. I mean, that seems to be our answer to most things, is keep them out. And that can't be an answer. I mean, that literally cannot be the answer. The answer cannot be, well, yes, billions of people are going to get displaced and we're just going to basically remain fortress Britain and keep them out. I think realistically that's true. Mm -hmm. um, the question is, the question is, you know, will we ride the waves? The, the waves are hitting. The waves are already hitting. Um, what will you know? What will happen with that? Obviously, climate regions will move. People will have to migrate north, um, up to the polar areas, and so on. There won't be much soil there because soil is thin, and so on. Technology will find some ways around, like farming on rafts at sea, and goodness knows what. Um, I don't believe that the human race will go extinct. There will be major extinctions in the animal and plant kingdom. Uh, we're in a time of mass dieback. But I don't believe that life on Earth will finish, and I don't believe that human life on Earth will finish. But the poor are already suffering. And when people say to me, you know, it's going to get worse, it's going to get really bad, and so on, one of the questions I put to them is, well, what are you doing right now for the poor and the marginalised who are already suffering? And when I hear that they're doing nothing, I think, well, you're not likely to do much or things get worse either. So get practising now. Get engaged socially. If in doubt what to do with your life, feed the hungry, literally or metaphorically. So what do we do now? There's so much to do. Let's keep it positive. So you've got to be selling something that is positive, mm -hmm. not just saying smash the system, but actually say buy this system. So it's about getting good PR on the side of the things that are are, are doing good and working good. And, you know, it, it, that's something that the Green Movement has been, has been very bad at for the last 50 years. They've not been good really at, at positive PR and you know we, we know you know if you're selling 
anything, any product, um, cars or fashion or whatever you're trying to sell, you use those strong positive images, the lifestyle images, the green images, you know, everything is, 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 is sunny and green and, and, and natural. Um, you know, we should be selling nature in the same, the same way. Um, and uh, I always come back to this idea, um, I think it was General Booth who started the Salvation Army that said, why should the devil have all the good tunes? Um, so he produced the hymns that were rousing and, you know, good, strong, strong things. And I think that's the same now. Why should the devil have all the good PR and media publicity for the things that we don't want, we don't need and are positively bad for us? You know, why can't we, as the, as the Green Movement, uh, reclaim our, uh, those good, the good side of things so that people can really see that life would be, would be and could be better? I felt there was a lot of negative messaging out there. So a, a lot of what you've alluded to in terms of um, taking action on climate change or, or being uh, making lifestyle changes that make sense to the environment is all about cutting back and removing and changing and almost sacrificing and people feel very emotional if there's a sense of loss or a sense of um, something being taken away and um, so uh, my challenge is we more try to focus on what are the positive feelings that can replace that so instead of talking about carbon footprints and reducing that to as small as possible we often explore with people the concept of carbon handprints and um, where instead of it being about sacrifice and um, making your footprint as teeny as possible we actually focus on what steps could you take that are positive so instead of it just being a swap of something bad to good or or bad to less bad as it often is actually instead turn it around and say what are the things that make sense for your life that connect with what you care about and um, that you can do whether that's individually in your household in your community in your workplace um, and try to help people understand that they, they can all make changes um, that aren't about sacrifice and aren't about loss, but actually help them um, connect with other people and actually grow, grow their own journey. I had to go and drop a package off at Matalan the other day. And then um, I went in, it's like this huge big warehouse. And it just made me really sad because there was all these clothes that there was like two people in there and the amount of power that was on. Um, to even just run the building for two people like wandering around and then the this kind of idea that nothing here is made to last nothing here is of good quality nothing here is you know been made with love and it just made me really sad and I, and I kind of when I was I ran home thinking about like well what could that space be First of all, let's dig up the car park and make it into a community garden and then let's get rid of all the racks of clothes and replace them with secondhand things, things that people can share, library situations, we'll have a cafe, there'll be a creche. And I was like, you're so, I'm so idealistic. I know it's much more complicated than that, but um, there's a better way. Mm. But it's because everything's instant and temporary. Everything's temporary. You don't expect that things aren't built to last because um, companies can make more money. Let's spend some time chatting about being outside in the garden. Um, my uh, wilding of my garden's going great. I've got loads of flowers sprung up. Um, lots of ragged robin and buttercups. And I noticed in the morning that spiders' webs are strung across the grass. It's very nice. Very That's nice. good. 
Um, although I am going to trim it shortly, but I thought I'd give it an extra couple of months. All our um, our food waste, which obviously we have as little as possible, but all of that goes into our um, our two uh, worm machines, and they're out there in the, in each garden, turning it into useful compost and. Now, did you go onto a course to learn to do this? Because I've tried to compost and I, I'm not successful. Well, I mean, Denise is in charge of those, but it does, it, it does work very well. We just we got we got the uh, the recycling things and we, we put put material in the top and then there's a hole at the bottom and out comes the the good stuff. Um, seems to be fairly straightforward. The, the worms need very little instruction. They just get on with it and do it themselves. I mean, there's millions upon millions. If you look inside, it's all these little white ones and some bigger ones, and uh, there's various other th- other little insects and creatures in there, but they all seem to be doing their thing. I'm growing beans this year. Oh, yeah? How's that going? Yeah. Um, uh, the plants are going really well. I haven't got any beans in them yet, but they will do. And I have a potato which was an old potato out the back of the fridge that started to grow roots, so I planted it. And now it's a, the, the leaves are about three feet tall. That's exciting. So once, once the flowers come on, that's when the potatoes are ready to eat. So I, I, I might really get like four potatoes out of it, but I've, I've got them for nothing. Uh, and I've also found there's a place in Huntley, which isn't far from us, and it's a barter shop. And it means that if we put excess food, which we went to, we were always given to family and stuff because there's only myself and my partner. And obviously my son being 18, if there's anything we see healthy, it might kill him. You know, it's one of those, <laughs> you know. Um, so uh, I now can give stuff to this barter shop and people can come in. And it means, you know, if you've got people that are on low incomes and they may even have been to the uh, food bank, but you don't get fresh stuff at the food bank. So they could come in with like a couple of tins of beans and say, can I exchange this for some potatoes, onions, carrots, whatever, which I think is just fantastic. So if we've got any extra this year, that's where it'll be going. Uh, so I'm really excited to get lettuce in and all that. I know it sounds sad, but I just like going out to the garden of an evening, picking stuff and just eating it. Yeah. And that's your dinner. Thank you to all my climates. You heard Shan, Stanley, Geraldine, Lily, Catherine, Ian, Aaron, Greta, Naroshni, John, Gregor, Ben, Pab, Jess, Harper, Alistair, Meredith, and I'm Hazel. Thank you for listening. You know that I appreciate you spreading the word about this podcast. Cheers. You want to change the world, you can't stand by. Just you know, man, it starts inside. Is that a parakeet in the background? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, of course. I spent a lot of money uh, just bringing a parakeet in for some ambient sounds. Oh, I think that's useful. I think you should every week have a different noise. Maybe a, a leopard next week. Lime Podcast. That was good. <laughs> <laughs>